Well, this morning we get to talk about something really exciting. Are you ready? I, <laughs> I throw that with some seriousness as we've been going through a study that the, 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 our struggle in life is really real and our struggle to deal with each other in church life is really real. And in 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12, we came to a place where he talked about dealing with destructive behavior amidst the church body. And if we don't deal with it, then how can we represent Christ to our community? It just will not work. And it's important to understand what are those destructive emotions and things. And so we've been going through that. And you know that we went through in dealing with anger, dealing with our tongue, And so this morning, we get to deal with the product of guilt. Guilt, and how do we deal with guilt? And and what is guilt? Because today, just like any other thing, we realize that a lot of times we don't understand what the Bible's talking about when it comes to guilt. And how many would say, Pastor, I really like yellow lights? When you come to a stop, you know... Do you like yellow lights or do you not like yellow lights? I don't know about that. But <laughs> Anissa's brave enough to, she knows I'm going to poke at her anyway. So, uh, But yeah, how many, I think yellow lights sometimes are amazing. And sometimes when you're in a hurry, they're kind of a bummer. We're like, oh, man. And, and we just want that guy in front of us to push a little faster because you think you can make it. And then they stop. You know, I've so many times I've stopped, you know, as a yellow light, and I've watched the guy behind me almost hit me, right? Yellow lights are there to do what? Make you go faster. That's right. <laughs> there is at least one honest person in here. So, so it's either A, going to make you go faster, or B, it's going to caution you that it's about time for somebody else to go. And, you know, some of us don't like to give other people's turns. We want to get to where we're going, right? But that's the thing. And as we think about guilt, I want you to think about this. Guilt is an excellent warning light. Warning, warning, warning. And it's a light that says something is wrong. Yet, when it persists too long, it provides fuel for Satan's lies, and it strangles our spiritual growth. It strangles us if it's allowed to persist too long. Have you ever been in an area in town, Seattle, you know, downtown Bellingham, where all the lights go yellow? And they stay yellow. And everybody yells at Raul, what's going on? Because <laughs> he works for the city. But, you know... What happens? Is it like, does it make everything easier? Or does it create congestion? It usually, everywhere I've been at least, when it gets to every light being yellow, it's like everybody forgets how to drive. Uh, there's anxiety, there's, there's disruption, there, people get angry, easy, uh, people uh, aren't. And then you have, occasionally you'll see that one patient person that everybody's mad at because they're not going fast enough. 
right? You know, the person that's sitting there, no, no, it's your turn, it's your turn. And the other person's like, no, no, wait a minute, you were there first. But the guy's patiently waiting, it's okay, I'm not in any hurry. And the people behind them are getting madder by the second. Well, guilt is not that different. If we let guilt persist for a long period of time, it begins to disrupt everything and it gives Satan the ability to lay a trap and when it catches you, we struggle in loving the Lord. We struggle in loving each other. We struggle with loving those around us. We struggle in understanding the Lord and what the Lord has for us. So what is guilt? And that's what we want to, we want to look at a true biblical sense of the guilt. And I'm going to apologize right up front because I would love to read every single scripture about this, but that would take us into the summer. So, uh, and uh, I cannot read every single thing. And so we're going to go fast. And uh, so we're going to have a race car time this morning instead of a, uh, just a, a slow lap around the track. So anyway, so we're going to be going fast, so I'm going to apologize for that now. But uh, if you remember what Rob read, there was a lot of comfort mentioned. There was a lot of grieving mentioned. But there was also a lot of blessings as a result of repentance. And so we want to talk about that this morning. So let's pray. Lord, I just pray that as we deal with this subject and as we read through parts of your word and we mention the other parts, I pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us, that we'd see that it's not just a bunch of wise things, but that, Lord, we would see the blessing that comes from your word when we trust your word and when we deal with the things that we, the circumstances in our life, rather than ignoring them. So, Lord, I pray that we would not ignore your spirit this morning, but that, Lord, we would be comforted with that which you have been comforted by when you died on the cross and when you rose again and now are sitting at the right hand of the Father. Thank you, Jesus, for showing us the way. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning as we talk about a subject that is difficult to deal with many times, I pray, Lord, that you would provide that comfort that only comes through what you did on the cross for our sins. Thank you, Jesus, for your humbly allowing yourself to be persecuted in such a way because of your love for us that you desired to save us from our sins. Thank you for that. And so, Lord, I pray that that would be the premise for which we see all of your teaching this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what is guilt? Guilt is this. This is kind of what you would see in, in the main teaching of, in a book or in a dictionary. It's the, guilt is a legal and judicial term. It comes from the legal sense, uh, and it means it implies criminal responsibility. If you hit somebody, you're responsible. It's kind of the idea. Um, you're responsible for that. In the eyes of the court of law, every, either human or divine. So that's kind of the generic legal sense of the term. But this is kind of what we see in Scripture. 
Guilt is a standard that, that has been violated. That is, that it is God's standard. And when God's standard is violated, guilt enters in. And guilt not just enters in, but it requires accountability and taking responsibility for the consequences. Now, remember this. We'll see this through a lot of scriptures, that it's accountability for taking responsibility uh, for consequences. So accountability means taking responsibility for consequences. It's not dreading them. It's not running from them. It's not ignoring them, but it's the taking responsibility for them. Now, teenagers, this is great because I don't know any teenager that likes to be told they're wrong. I still haven't figured that out yet. But uh, I did learn something about Rosa this week. You give her enough cups of coffee and you force her to talk and then she doesn't stop talking. That's pretty amazing. I didn't know she could talk that long. So anyway, you should ask her about it. No, don't do that. (laughs) She's going to kill me later. But here's the thing. Teenagers, this is great because no one likes to be told they're wrong. And these feelings start to well up within you. What do you do with those feelings? Now, adults, you're just bigger teenagers. You've learned how to mask those feelings a little bit better. So this is wonderful because we are going to learn that taking responsibility does something that you or I could never do on our own. And that's this next part. Um, I hit the button already, but uh, guilt is universal. That it, guilt is both for the unsaved and the saved. Romans 1.20 talks about uh, unbelievers that, it is the, that the law is written on their hearts and they feel the weight of that law. You talk to somebody about if they're a liar or a thief and, and they hate to admit it. Why? That's guilt that is written on their heart. So it, it's not just talking about the saved, but it's the unsaved as well. If you move into chapter 3, it says there's none righteous, no, not One, we all experience guilt. But this is the hardest part of guilt. This is the part that we all want to shy away from. This is the part, right, where it's like looking into the mirror and we don't really want to see what's there. So what do we do? We put put on a lot of stuff, right? We, you know, we don't like to see the bald spot, so we comb the hair over, right? We don't want to admit it, so we let the hair grow longer. I'm I'm picking at myself now. Because I don't want to pick on you ladies. So, <laughs> so well, but here's the thing. Guilt exposes what we really see, and we don't like it. Guilt is exposed by our conscience. And here's the thing. If we read Psalm 139, David says, wow. You've known everything. You've known me from the time in my mother's womb. You knit me. I am fearfully, wonderfully made in your image. You put me together, Lord. You know my thoughts. You know my inner workings. He's talking about his conscience. It exposes everything. And that's what guilt is. It's exposed by our conscience. And and the conscience and God is privy to all of our secrets. All those things that you don't want anybody to know, the things that you think about, that you sometimes keep your mouth shut and don't say, and you're like, man, I hope nobody knows what I really think. 
Guilt exposes that. Our conscience exposes, and guilt is exposed by our conscience and what we wish. I mean, God knows that. He knows our secret thoughts. He knows our motives. It is therefore a more accurate and more formidable witness to the courtroom of our soul than anything external. When guilt is in our life, what we do is we do a bunch of good things. We, we, we mask all those things. We do a bunch of stuff to, to mask it and to, so nobody will see it. But our conscience is weighing heavy and heavy and heavier because our guilt is exposed by it. So what do we do with guilt? What do we do with guilt? The problem is, is what we see in unresolved guilt. So if you would, turn to Psalm 38. Psalm 38 is an amazing testimony by David about what happens when we don't expose our guilt, if we don't resolve it, if we hide it, if we run from it, if we try to mask it and make our life look different than what we are feeling on the inside. This is an amazing testimony of what happens when we run from guilt. Here's the price tag. Here's what comes due in our life when we don't deal with guilt. I'm going to read the whole thing, so it's going to take us a while. Then we'll go back and pick it apart. It says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. So, Lord, he's saying, look, don't, be, don't discipline me when you're angry, right? How, much of, how many of us would like a calm person to discipline us? How about somebody that's in wrath and anger and out of control? Which one would you like? David is like, don't discipline me when you're angry. Don't discipline me when you're in your wrath. He says, therefore, if no sound, uh, therefore, it says, in your hand, it says for your, I'm sorry, I went to ch- verse three. It says, for your arrows have sunk into me and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the days I go around mourning, right, distressed. For my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the, the tumult of my heart. My whole, my, basically, my heart is tumultuous. It's, it's, it's struggling. Oh, Lord, all of my longing is before you. My, my, sighting, is, uh, my sighting, sighting is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. And the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My friends and my companions stand aloof from my plague. And my nearest kin stands far off. Those who seek my life, they lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man. I do not hear like a... I do not hear like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. 
but for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall, to fall and my pain is ever before me. I confess my, my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin, but my foes are vigorous. They are mighty, and many are those who hate me wrongfully, those who render me evil for good, accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. Oh my God, be not far from me. Make haste to, my, to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Does he sound like he's enjoying life? Yeah, I had a... There's a few tongue twisters in there for me as well. Do you see what guilt of sin or guilt? Do you see the price tag that's levied here? Let's go through it. Here's the price tag. Verse 2, the very first part. Do you notice the internal pain? The arrows that have come out of the Lord have sunk deep into him. Verse 2. The pain isn't just external, it's internal. There's this internal pain that he describes in verse 2. Not only in verse 2, but in the end of verse 2, there is a spiritual pressure. Do you notice the pressure that has come on his life? It isn't just external pressure from the circumstances, but look at verse 2. It says, and your hand has come down on me. It's like the apple press. You know the cider press? That pressure that is slowly pressuring until the... until it has just smashed the apples and the cider has come out? That's what he's describing here. Is this, when we don't resolve guilt, there's this hand of pressure of God squeezing down in our life. In verse 3, he describes physical sickness. There is no soundness in my flesh. There is no health in my bones. The Hebrew word health in my bones is actually describing your marrow. It's a medical term. People in the olden days couldn't understand what this meant. And then they began to realize that blood actually flows through your bones. And when it does, it creates antibodies and it creates white blood cells to do what? Make you healthy. And David is saying in his guilt that's been unresolved, he says, there's no soundness in my flesh. Uh, So not only is he experiencing pain, he's experiencing pressure from God, but he has physical illness. Look at verse 4. His burdens are heavy. He's experiencing these amazing heavy burdens. Verse 4, he says, My iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. Have you ever tried to pick up something and then realize it's too heavy? Yeah, it's pretty scary. That's what he's describing. Verse 5, the circumstances in life have increased. When you don't resolve the guilt in your life and you run from it and you try to mask it by whatever means possible, you are going, your circumstances that drive you crazy, they increase. They don't decrease. When you run from this, your life doesn't get easier. It just gets more difficult. In verse 5, he's describing that my wounds stink and fester, right? So 
uh, when you run from guilt and you you're mask it, the price tag is, is not that it gets better. You have to take care of a wound, don't you? When you take care of it, God allows it to heal. When you ignore it, Anissa's laughing because many times in my life I've either broken a bone or I've, I've cut myself where I've needed to have it taken care of and I ignored it. And when I, by the time I go into the doctor, it's twice as bad as it was originally. You can't ignore it. I, it took me 30 plus years to figure that one out. <laughs> and I still am learning on that one. You can't ignore it. It increases your, your circumstances. It increases daily sadness. Your daily, if you run from guilt, your sadness will increase. Verse 6. It's amazing. All day I go about mourning. Is that what describes, a ha- is that a happy life? No. That's describing daily sadness. Verse 7. It's a sense of weakness. You're going to sense weakness. You're going to be weaker day by day the more you run from your guilt. It's, it's not going to make you stronger. You can try to mask it and work to make yourself feel better. That's the world's answer. Do everything you can to make yourself feel better, but guess what it does? It wears you out even more, and you become weaker than what you started. You can't do that. Next, verse 8, inward agitation. How would you like to get inside your washer and experience the agitator? You know what the agitator does, right? It agitates the dirt in your clothes until it separates it from your clothes, right? Well, when we run from guilt and we try to mask it, the price tag is that you're in your inward emotions, you are just agitated. You're being pulled through the ringer. Your emotions just, it's like on the cutting edge. You're just struggling. This is the price tag. In fact, in verse 10, he goes on. I mean, verse 10 is amazing. He says, my heart throbs. Again, in the Hebrew word here is a medical term for heart palpitations. Your heart is going to beat. And now, I don't experience this praise the Lord, because I enjoy my coffee. But some people tell me when they drink more than two or three cups of coffee, what does your heart do? You feel it, right? I don't know what that's like. I just, it doesn't ever happen to me. Now, when I've been into a situation, there's a few times that of great stress, and I've experienced, and your heart, you, you feel it, and you're like, ooh, is this, is this good? And you're like, no, this is not good. But it's describing heart palpitations. If you run from guilt and you try to hide it, this is the level of problems you're going to experience. It's, it's crazy. Also, uh, I noticed, I put it in red up here. I put it in your notes. It says verse 11, but it's actually the end of verse 10. And that you're going to have sad eyes. It says, the light of my eyes is also gone before me. He's describing people's countenance has gone out of their eyes. You know, you know what I mean? You know when somebody's eyes are sparkling because they're excited? Right? 
Uh, Dad, you know, Rob, do you remember when Ella told you I'm engaged? <laughs> the, the, the look on her face, right? Or how about the look on Benjamin's face yesterday when he saw Ella all dressed in white? The, I, that's my favorite thing. My first thing to do is not look at the bride. My first thing is look at the, the, the groom. His eyes just, I remember my first instinct was to cry. That was his first instinct was to cry. And then dad started crying. It was a great thing, but eyes were sparkling and full of light. But that's not what he's describing. He's saying, look, there's just, your countenance is down. You have sad eyes. Verse 11, did you notice what happens? Does everybody run to you and like, oh, let me help you? What is it describing? No, you're isolated. You become so isolated and, re- and you're struggling in life. My friends and my companions, they stand aloof from my plague. They see my plague. They see everything that's going on and they don't run to me. You're isolated. You experience threats. David experienced those pretty regularly. Verse 12, sorrow. Your life is just filled with overwhelming sorrow, which leads to verse 18, anxiety. Anxiety. This is the price tag when you don't deal with your guilt. Here's the cultural approach to guilt. This is what we see most often. Today, um, MacArthur wrote uh, in his commentary in 2 Corinthians, he said, today's culture aggressively and systematically tries to silence the conscience. If you read 1 Timothy 4, 4, it says that. It says, and we're going to read in a minute, but it says, MacArthur said, people have been taught to ignore any and all their guilty feelings. Any, everything that your conscience produced, ignore it. View them as harmful to your self-esteem. If it makes you feel bad, run from it. Find what makes you feel good and just focus on that. They believe their problem stems not from their sin, but from only external factors beyond their control. Sin and guilt are viewed not as moral and spiritual problems that need to be dealt with, but to be suppressed. Here is the cultural idea. They only want to deal with the effects or the externals of guilt. Um, Down in California, they have a, a... Long before it became popular, their biblical counseling back in the 70s wasn't called biblical counseling, but when it was first started, um, the professor wanted to show the students the effect of this, this comment here, that they only want to deal with the outside, the effect. They never want to deal with the real problem. So he said, here, he said, he took 20 students in his class, and I want you to say the exact same phrase that I really am struggling with my life and I don't feel good about myself. That exact same statement. He sent all 20 students to the exact same medical hospital and say, say this. And only one of them was released from the hospital that day. Most of them, 90% of them, were diagnosed with five different mental disorders. They went in... Some of them, they, but they, they had to come in. They had a lawyer with the professor ready to get them discharged 
to prove a point. And it's amazing what happens in our society because they just focus on the outside. They never focus on the truth. Now, let me read you this. 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 2. It says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, which we're living in latter days, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves. See, they devote themselves to something that isn't of the Lord. Listen, it says, They devote themselves to deceitful spirits, deceitful, and the teaching of demons. Though the... the through the insincerity of liars, that's who they're listening to, whose conscience are seared. They're focusing not on the conscience and the guilt in their, that they need to deal with, then don't focus on it in any way, and they focus on people who are sincerely lying. <laughs> Let me give you an example. Guys, you'll get a chuckle out of this. Or, I'm sorry, ladies will get a chuckle out of this. Genesis 3, 12. The man said, Adam said to God, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate it. Who was he blaming? The woman. What was he blaming the woman for? He focused on the externals. He didn't say, God, you're right, I chose to eat it. He focused on the outside, not on the inside. This is God's answer for guilt. And now we begin to run really fast. The answer for guilt is this, confession and repentance. Confession and repentance. And so we're going to focus first on confession. What is confession? The steps of confession. So what is it? It is this, acknowledging your sin. You have to acknowledge it. Yeah, I made a mistake. That is the first step, acknowledging, confessing. I made a mistake. I did wrong. I sinned. It's very simple, but for some reason, men haven't figured it out. Yeah, I'm lost, right? No, I know where I am. Your honey goes, where are you? I don't know. I'm looking on my phone. <laughs> Acknowledge your sin. It gets you there quicker. That's the idea. Admit your sin and ask for forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9. If you ask for forgiveness, he is faithful and just to forgive you of all unrighteousness and cleanse you and make you pure. Right? Acknowledge your sin. Jesus, uh, in, in Psalm 51, David said, Lord, against you and only you have I sinned. I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me, and against you and only you I have sinned. Did David mince any words? Did he? No, I did something wrong, and I did it in your sight, God. See, that's the idea. Whoops, I went. That's the idea. Don't blame shift. Don't use excuses such as, well, if this would have happened, it wouldn't, I wouldn't have made that mistake. Or, but, you know, it was really their fault. They did this, and, this is, and so there, it's, I chose to do what I did because of what they did. Isn't that what Adam said? Did God say, oh, yeah, you're right, it was her fault? Is that what God said? No. <laughs> 
yeah, thank you, Adam. Now we have to work and deal with weeds. In Humboldt County, that's real, right? I didn't know what weeds were until I moved to Humboldt County. <laughs> or from Humboldt County to Whatcom County. Whatcom County, everything grows like five times faster than everywhere else I've lived. It's crazy. But we can't blame shift. We have to acknowledge the hurt and accept the consequences. Don't downplay sin. Like, I'm sorry, as if I'm sorry is all that you need to say. And I'm sorry, it's really not that bad. Here, let me give you an example. God, when you walk up to somebody, and here's an example of acknowledging your sin before other people. And I love it when I see people do this. God has been convicting me on how wrong I was. I have confessed my sin to God and asked him for forgiveness. I have brought it to God's attention that I recognize I'm sinning. I confess to you, and I have asked, I'm asking you, would you forgive me? Would you please forgive me? I sin. I made, I made a mistake. There's no ands, ifs, or buts, ors. I'm sorry. You don't downplay it. In fact, you just say it. This is what it is. Teenagers, when you're confronted with something you're doing wrong and, and your parents are teaching you, just accept that, yeah, I made a mistake. Now how can I move on? And if at all possible, make restitution. Luke 15, the, the, you know, the prodigal son, what did he say? God, accept me, or, you know, Dad, accept me because now I'm all better. I'm sorry. No. And this is a great example of restitution. He says, treat me as one of your hired servants. Let me try with all my heart to pay back for what I did. What did the dad do? He forgave him. Did he make him pay back everything, or did he just give him everything? He gave him everything. He made him back, restored him back into sonship. That's the idea. We got to knowledge. Here's the misconceptions. The misconceptions. Some people think <laughs> regret or remorse. Oh, man, I feel so bad. They think that's confession. Look at Judas. How bad did Judas feel? He felt so bad, what did he go out and do? He committed suicide. See, he didn't deal with his guilt. He did not deal with his guilt. It stuck with him to the point that he committed suicide. This is plaguing us today, people. Look at our community. People are not dealing with guilt. They don't know what to do with it. And we have the answer in Christ. We have the answer in what we celebrated last week. Merely focusing on the situation and how sin makes life hard is not confession. Oh, my life is so hard. That's not confession. Here's true confession. True confession means saying the same thing that God says. It is wrong. What I did was wrong. The situation I'm in is wrong. Confession is ongoing, by the way. When we confess, we continually agree with God. We don't go, yep, I was wrong, and then go out and do the same thing again. That's only feeling sorry for the moment. True confession means saying that it is wrong and I'm going to do everything I can to never go in that direction again. Confession is not worldly sorrow, which we read in 1 Corinthians 7, or 2 Corinthians 7, which 
occurs because we are sorry that we were caught. We are sorry that it, the circumstances. We're sorry that we hit somebody. We're sorry that somebody else got hurt. That's not confession. Confession is dealing with true repentance. It's a change. Repentance means changing of our thinking that results in doing what is right. Okay, So godly grief produces repentance. Worldly grief produces death in our life. Let me show you the idea. Do you see this? Temporary remorse. Let's show you. Temporary remorse versus genuine repentance. I kind of missed on the repentance part in the red there. So sorry about the distraction. So temporary remorse is short-lived. True, genuine repentance is long-term change. Here's the next one. Temporary remorse involves emotions. You're just emotional about the circumstance. But genuine repentance involves emotion, but a determination in your will to do what is right. Temporary remorse is distressed by the consequences. You're, you're very distressed. You're very much in pain. You're very much hurting. And you want to get rid of it, and you're distressed. And you talk about the circumstances over and over and over. But actually, true repentance means you're hurting because of your actions. My actions. True repentance means making vague resolutions versus making specific resolutions. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, it's, and now I'm okay. Make, we always do that. We say, oh, yeah, I'm sorry that that hurt you, or I'm sorry that it... But you don't make any specific resolutions of what you're not going to do. Uh, by the way, temporary remorse wants public attention. See, I am sorry. Just think of politics when you read that. We want public attention, right? How many politicians have we seen caught red-handed, and what do they do? They ignore the sin, but they make public adulations to draw attention about how they are been hurt or distressed. But genuine repentance, once humble, accepts obscurity. They don't want attention. They just want to deal with the guilt. Uh, by the way, true temporary remorse desires immediate return to the position that they are in. Hey, I'm sorry, now let me be back right in your good graces. Genuine repentance recognizes the need to rebuild trust over time. Why do some people feel guilty who have confessed? Well, or can I say it this way? Why do some people feel guilty who have not yet, they really never violated scripture, but yet they still feel guilty. All guilt is real. If a person thinks that they have done something wrong, then for them it was wrong and they feel guilty. So thus, they still need to deal with it. Choosing to wallow in your past and to think only about your past and, and responding to people based on your past will always put you in Psalm 38. Wallowing is why many people never get out of guilt. They stay in their past rather than focusing on what they have in Christ. They're not focusing on Christ. They're focusing on their circumstances. 
the question you need to ask yourself is if you say, well, I've confessed my sin, but I still am dealing with so much frustration. The question then you ask is, have I truly forsaken sin? Do you have a wrong view of sin? Do you see your sin as God sees it? Are you prideful thinking, here's a new one. Are you, do you think that your sin is bigger than God? So you've really not dealt with your guilt. Do you wrongly equate being forgiven with having forgotten? Being forgiven doesn't mean it's forgotten. But God chooses to what? For, forget. It's a choice. It doesn't mean always that it has been forgotten. Some of us wallow in our sin or we wallow in guilt because people haven't forgotten what we've done. Rather than running to God, we run to the, our, our past. Do you believe God's promises of forgiveness? Do you believe that He will cleanse you? Do you, believe, do you really believe that He'll forgive you? This is one of the hardest things. People sometimes just simply do not trust God. Here's the counterfeits. Justification of sin on something other than than Christ. You know what's funny is, is we think that we've been forgiven by the way people treat us. Do you see? You, you feel right or justified because people are treating you right the way you want to be treated. That's not forgiveness. God forgave you. When He died on the cross for your sins, He forgave gave you. By the way, looking for a pat on the back or looking for somebody else to fix it for you, that's not forgiveness. You have to go to your Savior. Go to the Savior that loves you. I want to read you ten sayings as we close about our Savior from Spurgeon, a great preacher long ago. And he said this about our sin and about guilt and dealing with it. Remember these things with dealing with guilt. Number one, you are a great sinner. That's not what we want to hear, right? But he is a great savior. If you've repented and put your trust in Christ as savior, your sin is dealt with. Your guilt has been replaced with God's glory. Stop looking at your sin and run to your glorious Savior. Grab the cross and let go of your sin. Number two, as far as God is concerned, concerned your sin has ceased. When God looks at your sin, your sin has ceased. If you are in Christ, God, number three, God is more ready to forgive you than I am ready to be offended. God is more ready to forgive you or to forgive than I am ready to offend. It is the church that is unmerciful sometimes. The church is what? Us. It is the church that is unmerciful sometimes, but not the master he is ever willing to receive us when we come to Him. Number five, if Christ was crucified for you, 
you cannot be cursed again. Number six, he could not love us more than that if we had never fallen. Do you know that he loves you right now even more than if you would never, ever sin in your life? Number seven, in the, in the family register of glory, the small and the great are written with the same pen. Our names are all the same. If we have put our faith in Christ, we are all written with the same pen in glory. Think about that one. There is no one here that is different. We are all children of God, all written in the same book by the same blood of Christ. Number eight, he is not the God of the hills only, but of the valleys also. God is with you right down in the valley. Your your sins are so gone that they cannot be laid to your charge. Number nine. Number ten, God cannot change or lie. God cannot change or lie. He, will ne- he never will bring to mind against the sin of that man whom he has pardoned. If you've been pardoned by the blood of Christ, he will never lay your sin to your charge again. So why not run to him? Lay your guilt before the cross. When a man believes in Christ, he is in that moment in God's sight as though he had never sinned at all in his life. He has the robe of God's glory presented to him. I am forgiven. I am forgiven. I am forgiven. Just before I die, sanctification, that is God's working to perfect me, will be finished. We too can say it is finished when we go home to be with God in glory. He will perfect us. Guilt has to be dealt with. Run to the cross. Run with all your might. Grab onto the cross. Hold fast. Cling to Him. And your guilt and shame will disappear the memories can disappear be transformed by the renewing of your mind if you lay your life down before the cross it says and be transformed by the renewing of your mind Romans 12 2 don't conform yourselves to the pattern of the world don't run after the world trying to hide your guilt and shame run to the cross expose it put light on it let the light of Christ wash over you and let your Life be made pure in his sight. Don't hide it. Expose it in all its glory. I am wrong. God, forgive me. And let the guilt wash away with no agitation like the washing machine. You don't have to be put through the spin cycle. Praise the Lord. (laughs) You too can be filtered clean in the light of Christ, at the blood, through his blood at the cross. Guys, we're forgiven. If you've never been forgiven, run to the cross. Give your life to Christ. 
He will make your life as white as snow. He will raise your life with his to glory, to live for all eternity with God. But if you are living in sin and have never chosen to give your life to Christ, if you've never responded and believed, confess and repent, right? Believe that Christ died for your sins. If you've never done that, then your life is still hidden in sin and not in Christ. Give your life to Christ. I beg you. He is calling to you. Believe and be saved. Confess with your mouth that He is your Savior and He will save you. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for our timing and this morning as we talk about a, a hard subject to grasp and a hard subject for us to even want to listen to. But I pray, Lord, I know that we all struggle with this at one time in our life. And I pray with all my heart that those that are sitting here would say that and, and confess their sin, not try to hide it, not try to downplay it, not accuse other people for their own mistakes, not focus on other people's sin, but just say, yeah, I made a mistake. I am sinner. I'm a sinner. That they would allow you to expose it and wash it away by the blood of Christ. That we'd remember that we are forgiven and that they would not wallow in guilt. You did not save us for us to wallow, but to live in the present, in the light of your glory. Lord, I pray that if anyone here has never given their life to you, they really aren't saved from their sin. They've never been saved. That, Lord, that they would realize that, yeah, I'm guilty. I stand before God guilty and never had my guilt washed away by the blood of Christ. I've never given my life to Christ. That, Lord, that in their heart right now, that they would say, yes, I need you. And that they would confess and believe in their heart that you are the Savior who has taken away the sin of the world. Lord, I pray that they would do that right now. They would wait no longer. That they would respond to that guilty feeling, that, that emotion, and they wouldn't no longer hide it, but they would run to the cross and cling to it with all their might and just experience who you are the righteous judge who will forgive based on Christ's gift of dying on the cross for our sins and rising again and conquering death for us. Lord, I pray that we would live every day in that spot at the foot of the cross. May we not look anywhere else and hide, but may we cling to you and be free of our guilt and shame. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.